Hello and a warm welcome to our podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, presented by the world's greatest lexicographer, that's Susie Dent. Not that she describes herself as that, but I do because it's true. And by me, Giles Brandreth. And today we're podcasting, but it reminds me that the word podcast is quite new. And it's a successor, I suppose, to the word broadcast. How long has the word broadcast been around, Susie? Uh, Well, it's the 19th century, Giles, and it means to scatter seed with the hand. So it was literally casting seeds with a broad range or a broad stroke, if you like. And then it meant to scatter or disseminate widely. And then in the 1920s, it meant to disseminate a message or news or musical performance or anything that was kind of audible or visible, um, including radio and TV. And how long has the word podcast been with us? Podcast, I would say, um, probably... 1990s, early 2000s. Um, Here we go. Yes, 2004, actually, a little bit later than I thought. And obviously that is from iPod and cast, as in broadcast. Very good. Well, here we are broadcasting on our podcast. And I'm thinking about broadcasting because next year will be the centenary of the BBC, which is one of the world's oldest broadcasters and has been broadcasting for 100 years since 19. 22. And I've been appearing on BBC radio programmes mm, since the 1960s. But I suppose the longest running programme on which I've been a regular contributor is something called Just a Minute on Radio 4. And it's listened to, I'm pleased to say, around the world. You've heard this programme, haven't you, Susan? I love Just a Minute. Yes, I grew up with Just a Minute. It was one of the favourites. It is one of the favourites of my mum's, actually. So, um, yeah, very much comfort have, radio. Have you, have you taken part? Have you ever been a, a contestant? No. I would be hopeless. Well, you wouldn't be hopeless. You'd be very, very good. But it is trickier than it sounds because, look, I've already broken the rules. I said very, very. Let me see if I can talk <laughs> about um, uh, the world of broadcasting, the world of radio uh, for 60 can I seconds. Buzz the, in? The, the rule, you can buzz in because the rules of the game are if you don't know this game, you've got to try to speak for just a minute, 60 seconds, up to 60 seconds, without repetition, a deviation, or hesitation. And the real challenge, for example, if you're going to talk about the BBC, is you're already repeating the letter B. So I'd be out immediately. So let's give it a go. Here's Giles with 60 seconds, uh, and I hope you've got your stopwatch starting. Oh, hang on a second. Get I your... need to start the stopwatch. Start the stopwatch um, now. And this is where I would be hopeless because you can't have ums or ahs, can you? And I have too many of those. So you're not allowed any white noise at all. Um, right. I just used an um. Starting now. I love the world of radio because, for me, sounds coming in through the ears fill the mind and the imagination and make me happy and also can offer stimulation. I first took part in a radio programme in the 1960s. It was something called Woman's Hour. It made me wonder why there's never been a programme for men with a similar title. Then I came and found I was on Just a Minute, a programme originally presented by Nicholas Parsons. Oops. Repetition of programme. Oh, well done. You've caught but me out. I'm not going to take over. So carry on. I want to hear. I want to hear what, what happened. I just did that because I've always wanted to interrupt. Go, go for it. Now it's Sue Perkins who is in the chair and quite brilliant. I still love it. But what intrigues me and what I'm going to be talking to Susie Dent about now is some of the words 
from the world of radio. Who invented it? And is the language of the wireless, the crystal set, these early forms of... Beep. Oh. beep, beep, beep. No, that wasn't an interruption. That was the bell. Oh, good. <laughs> very fun. Excellent stuff. Well, not very that, good. No, but, it is very good because you have to uh, you have to actually be very good with a thesaurus, don't you? I've, I've noticed that before. Paul Merton is excellent with his synonyms uh, because you can't actually repeat what went before. That, that was excellent. That's the challenge. Well, let's, let's dig down into the language language of radio. Uh, mm. I mean, the radio, as we know it, was invented, I think, by an Italian, Marconi, 1874, 1937. I think he invented the, the concept in the uh, mid-1890s, and it began to be used commercially uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, but of course, it was when radio stations such as the British Broadcast Company were created in the 19, early 1920s and then eventually became the BBC as we now know it in the 1920s. Uh, that's when it became popular. I mean, extraordinary phenomenon. The word radio, though, why, why is it called a radio? Uh, it's from the Latin radius, which means a ray or a beam. So that was all a nod to the technology. I mean, in fact, quite a lot of the words that we use in radio go back to, to Latin. Frequency is another word because that is from Latin frequentum, which meant repeated or in great numbers or sort of numerous. And obviously that's how we use frequency today, but we also use it for your spot, I suppose, or your position on the radio waves, which are also populated by other radio stations. I'm interested in the way the word radio now has become common, because when I was a child, it was known as the wireless. And I yes. I think as a little boy, I, well, I know as a little boy, in the 1950s, I would lie in bed listening on my crystal set and I would listen to radio comedy. That's when I first heard the voices of people like Frankie Howard, Tony Hancock, Kenneth Williams. Uh, and there was a show I loved called Take It From Here, which had a sketch each week about a family known as the Glums. Pa Glum was played by Jimmy Edwards. Yes. Big battle-chested man. With a big man. beard. That, oh, no, a big moustache. Big moustache, yes. Uh, RAF type. Handlebar. Handlebar yeah. moustache. He'd been in the RAF during the war and he was known as Professor Jimmy Edwards because he'd been to university. And from 1953, playing the part of his daughter in this sketch was the lovely June Whitfield, mm. who I later got to know, of course, most latterly most famous as the granny in Absolutely Fabulous. But she was on the radio in 1953 playing Eth, uh, Jimmy Edwards' daughter. Oh, Ron, beloved. Yes, Eth, said the boyfriend. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> wireless was also used to describe a radio. Wireless simply means there was no... There's no wires, but you've just made me think of something, which is cat's whisker. Oh, so, you yes. know, today we talk about the cat's whiskers as the kind of acme of excellence. And there were so many riffs on the same theme. So we've got the cat's pyjamas, but there were some some lovely ones like the elephant's adenoids or the kipper's knickers um, and so on and <laughs> so on. Knees. But the cat's bee's knees is the famous one. So cat's whisker actually was, was originally a fine copper or gold wire in a crystal wireless receiver or in types of electronic circuit. So it was already there as a phrase and then was sort of picked up and popularised to mean, you know, as we say, the sort of the ultimate in something. So um, I, I love that. But yes, the wireless is just simply because there is are no wires. And I, we talk about wireless technology meaning something different today all the time. I, I just think if anybody can finally nail dispensing with charges so they're not every single thing that we use in our lives either 
even with Bluetooth, you have to charge the thing that gives you Bluetooth. I mean, it drives me up the wall. Somebody please get rid of chargers once and for all. That's my plea. Well, Um, you see, you're now using very new words like Bluetooth. But going mm. back to the early days of radio, I remember a word that I never understood, Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z. What have that got to do with radio? (sighs) Hertz, I think the um, technicians... Uh, amongst our purple listeners will will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's a, I think it's a unit of frequency which is equal to one cycle per second. And there was a German physicist, I do know this, Heinrich Hertz, who was the first person to identify them and then explore them. We have FM and AM, don't we, for frequency modulation and amplitude modulation. I didn't know that was that, that's what they stood for. FM, AM, frequency modulation. And what was the other one? Amplitude Modulation, but do you remember? Well, what's that, what does that mean? Well, again, Explain. it's too technological for me to even go into. But I would prefer to stay with Jasper Carrot because he had his own versions, which I think were brilliant. And he said Jasper Carrot was um, is a very funny British uh, comedian, and he once said, "I'm amazed at DJs today. I am firmly convinced that AM stands for absolute moron. I will <laughs> not begin to tell you what FM stands for." <laughs> Um, so, yes, obviously, he didn't didn't have such a high opinion of the riders of the airways back in the 1980s. But, um, but yeah, so we need to get into disc jockey and all of those things. But oh, we technologically, do, but there's yeah. long wave and short. I mean, FM and AM, before mm. that, I remember long wave and short wave on the radio. Yes. Don't ask me to explain the technology side of things because I will get hopelessly lost. But I can at least tell you what they stand for. Yeah. What about antenna? Yeah, well, antenna, obviously, they were there, entomologically speaking, a long time before um, they were there, technologically speaking, because it's it's a reference to the antenna that you will find on the heads of insects and crustaceans and other things. So there's kind of sensory appendages. And then the idea is that you get a wire or another structure which receive and the sensory to um, airborne radio waves. And a, a radio aerial, I know that the BBC mm. Staff magazine used to be called Ariel, but I think that is to do with the the sprite, the god, the figure, Ariel. But also Ariel is the thing that the waves connect, that's how the sound waves are sent out or connected in some way. What is an Ariel? Well, it's called an aerial simply because it's in the air. So it goes back oh. to the ancient Greek meaning of the air. So that's as, as sim- simply as it comes. And then we've used aerial since 1600s to mean flying in the air or taking place um, in the air or a creature or spirit of the air, which I love. And then in the early 1900s, it was again, it was, a, it was something by which radio waves were transmitted and received. Well, clearly the technology is not your strong point and no. it certainly isn't mine, though <laughs> I knew, I'm familiar with in these early days of, of radio, my, my father enjoyed playing with the wireless and he had a family one that his father had put it together, it built this radio and used for the case some leaves from a dining room table, so it had a lovely sort of mahogany case and then put things together to make it work, including radio valves. It was all quite complicated, but they seemed to understand it. Either you understand these things or you don't. I absolutely agree with you. And um, I think anybody listening to us will know why we are not electricians or technicians or uh, whatever. I discovered having lived in my house for quite a few years that I had a second fuse box the other day that I had no knowledge of at all. And so it cost me a lot of money for an electrician to come over and discover it for me. And all I needed to do was flick a switch and everything came back on. That's how bad I am. But I can tell you about the vocabulary of DJs. That's what I want to hear about because I have been a disc jockey. Have you been a disc jockey yet? In your uh, time? It depends. I think on Radio Oxford, they had sort of prescribed or pre-chosen songs. And I would 
help press a button that brought them on. But I don't think I was never a turntablist or, you know, anybody who was like a proper DJ. I began uh, uh, many years ago, more than 50 years ago. There's a radio station in Britain called LBC. And it was the first commercial radio station in this country, started 50 years ago. And I was there on the very first day. And because it was the first commercial radio station, they didn't think people would necessarily listen to the advertisements. They thought they'd turn off when the advertisements began because there hadn't been commercial news broadcasting before. So they got me in to set a puzzle before every ad break. And we began on a Monday. So my first puzzle was take an everyday English word like Monday, M-O-N-D-A-Y, and turn it into another everyday English word. We'll give you the answer after the ad break to persuade people to listen to the ads. And then I came on after the ad say, yes, Monday, you can rearrange the letters and make Dynamo. Dynamo. Listen to Dynamic LBC. And on we went. And then later, I was the summer stand-in on Radio 2 for Terry Wogan, on the breakfast programme. He used to do, this is a a famous British uh, radio broadcaster, and um, he had a summer holiday, and they brought me in. And it was a bit terrifying. I got to learn no words like jingles and stings and beds, and I didn't really understand them. So maybe you can unpack some of those for me. Um, I certainly can. Um, So jingles, as you would expect, predate the radio used them for a very long time. So they go back to the 1700s, well, 1600s, I think, actually. And it was first a sound of clinking metal, then it was a short verse, and then it became what we know today, which are little short musical phrases. And a sting is quite similar, isn't it? And um, I think it's called a sting because it's short and sharp. Uh, So it's to do with the kind of brevity of it. Then we have beds, which is what is in the background. So it's as if the whole programme or the radio output is kind of lying on this, but it's sort of slightly unobtrusive. And that's instrumental music in the background. And the reason it's called a bed is it's there lying in the background and you are the program is lying on top of the bed yes don't rush from jingle because because you know all these things you think me we do too i'm i'm just gasping at this i'm now realizing there's a character in dickens called mr jingle isn't there is he in pickwick papers and i now realize of course victorians talked about christmas jingles as being christmas greetings christmas messages you would mm. send someone a christmas jingle so it's really a much older word i had no idea it's basically to, well, it was the, the sound of small bells, as in jingle bell, and then a mingling of ringing sounds, and uh, yeah, and then and then so on. And in poetry, it was to have alliteration and rhymes and other repetitions as well. So it was all about that kind of, you know, the sound effect, really. Lovely. Any more words from the world of radio to share with us? Well, fairy dust is quite nice. So you might find fairy dust in a music mix. And that's when a DJ sort of introduces effects like echo or reverberation. And they can be wet or dry. So in sound effects and fairy dust, wet is the process sound and dry is the original sound. So wet is the, all that echo and reverberation and dry is the kind of, you know, the, the, the absolute, mm. the, the original version of it, if you like. Um, hot. Hot is a sound that is too loud. And it's funny, hot can mean so many different things in different professions. So we, we talked before, we're talking about telly, that when I was first told as I was sitting in the countdown studio that I looked hot on the floor. I was actually very flattered until I realised that hot meant looking shiny. Um, And it's, I suppose, similar in music as well. It's a sound that is too loud. 
And then you have a buzz track, which or a chatter track, which is background sound, and that's recorded to cover edits on location. You'll know that we've uh, recorded on location a lot. So the chatter track is is a sort of background sound, and very often when you're recording something, you have the ambient noise as well, don't you, Jazz? So, so whoever's recording the program will just you have to be completely silent, and they will take in the sound of whatever room or studio or outside location that you are in. So those are all the sort of the sounds, but I I love what is it, the words that are used by presenters as well. And I remember talking to Nikki Campbell, who's a very popular, long-standing radio presenter in Britain. And he told me about having a disco. And having a disco when you are working on talk radio is not dancing with John Travolta. That's a discussion. So it's a discussion between two people. But a sneaky disco, apparently, is a discussion between guests who previously said, I'm only talking to the presenter, but then they can't help interrupting each other once the debate gets underway. So that's ultimately what the presenter wants. But uh, but they've kind of sneaked it in. That's uh, a sneaky disco. I love that. A sneaky disco. And then a donut is when a DJ will go to a, a correspondent who's on the road, who's in an outside location, who then interviews a guest and then hands back to the studio. In other words, there's, there's jam or something in the middle of this, which is why it's called a donut. And, oh my goodness, there's, there's lots, there's lots and lots. On it, like Rob Bonnet. Do you remember Rob Bonnet? I he knew was Rob Bonnet. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, there you go. Rob Bonnet lives very much in radio studio shorthand. It means um, I'm there, so I'm on it like Rob Bonnet. <laughs> was Rob Bonnet always very quick? Yes, absolutely. Okay. One of the great joys of being very old is that I've met everybody um, yeah. who was ever alive, I feel. In fact, you're about the only living person I still know because they've all died. <laughs> but one of the people I loved listening to on the radio most, a voice I loved, was that of Richard Baker. Richard Baker is best remembered in this country as the newsreader. He read the early evening news and later the nine o'clock news on BBC television. But he also was a regular broadcaster on the radio and he used to do a program called Start the Week and he had a lovely voice and he was a lovely man. He lived to a good old age, well into his 90s. One of his sons told me that towards the end of his life, when he was living in some sheltered accommodation, he would, for the sake of other residents, he would, uh, during the day, cut out articles from the newspaper and then in his 90s, while everyone else was sitting having their evening meal, he would sit at the head of the table and read the news. So in his 90s, Richard Baker was still reading the news to other people in the old folks' I love that. His son, Andrew Baker, actually works on The Telegraph. Ah. And I have written for him before. And he regularly tweets sort of memories of his dad, which is which is quite nice. Oh, lovely. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, the son I knew was called James Baker. And okay. he and I worked at uh, TVAM in the, okay. back in the 1980s. Did you ever used to start your broadcast with 1212? One, two, one, two. Yes, people do. Why is that? It's a sort of sound check thing, isn't it? It is a sound check. It's either what did you have for breakfast, which you were regularly asked by people checking your sound levels, or one, two, one, two, which is more traditional, I suppose. And one is used apparently to provide a low frequency and two to provide a higher frequency so that they can check that the mic is absorbing the different vocal frequencies and dealing with it all right. Because they sound quite different, do they? One, two, one, two. I suppose they do. Is it one, two, one, two? Yes, I suppose there's a sort of modulation there in each of them. Of all the things you hear on the radio, if you do still listen to the radio... I do, yeah. Oh, you do? I've, I'm now totally podcast devoted. Are you? I listen to the radio all the time, even sports. I will listen to football, I will listen to golf, 
on the radio. I find it more captivating than watching it. It's that strange. And that is, and I can't do two because I'm a bloke. I can't do two things at once. So I can't <laughs> have radio on in the background. Either I'm listening to it, or yes. I'm not listening to it. I can't. Uh, I sometimes listen to the radio when I'm washing the dishes late at night, and very late at night, I hear my favourite programme which is the shipping forecast. Oh, I love the shipping forecast. We need to actually, the language of the shipping forecast is absolutely brilliant. We should talk about that. Maybe it's a purple extra one day. Oh, that's a nice idea. Yes, let's do that. There's always so much to cover, isn't there? Let's do a separate yeah. episode dedicated to the shipping forecast. And if you want to know about the Purple Club and the, the extras that are available, just go to the uh, Apple subs and you can find out more about it. Shall we take a quick break? Let's take a break. You know what's going through my head at the moment? It's going to be an earworm all day sailing by. Do, 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 do. do you remember? That's very good. I love that. I, you've got a very sweet voice. You're very musical. <laughs> Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple. And we're getting to our favourite bit of the show, which is when we get to hear from you, the purple people. And you always have such fantastic questions. So um, we have had a lovely email from Emily, who says, Kia Ora from Aotearoa in New Zealand. And she's wondering where the term under the weather comes from. And she finishes with na mihi nui, which means thank you very much. It's a great question. And um, it's an enduring expression, isn't it? Under the weather, Giles. I like to say fobbly mobbly or sort of just a little bit meh, but under the weather... It predates all of those. It sort of originated on the high sea. So we think it's part of nautical slang. And the full expression was under the weather bow, which was a bleak and cheerless place to be because the weather bow was the side experiencing the worst of the winds and the storms. So that's the kind of theory that if you were under there, you really weren't feeling very well. But equally, sailors who did become ill would be sent below deck to recover. And so they would be under the weather because they would be protected from it by not being up on deck. So that's the idea there. And it reminds me of above board as well, which often people think comes from being sort of on the deck, if you like, rather than below it. But actually, that comes from uh, poker playing because if players keep their hands above the table, which was known as a board, they seem to be playing fairly. So under the weather, which can mean feeling rather low, in fact means the reverse of that. Under the weather means you're escaping the worst of the weather. Well, it meant... Yeah, no, it just it basically meant that if you were sent below deck, it meant you weren't feeling very well because that's where you would be being tended to. Ah, uh, away from the weather. Fine. Yeah. OK. Well, yeah. Ella Sykes has written in, Dear Susie and Giles, I'm a long-time listener of Something Rides with Purple. We're very grateful to you for that. And if you're a newcomer, bear in mind there are more than 100 episodes so that you can start at the beginning and take your time to catch up. Anyway, Ella says, I'm a student, and as students do, I enjoyed a late night out last week. As fun as it was at the time, by the following afternoon, both my housemaid and I were flagging a bit and had to retreat to the sofa to watch mindless TV and... <laughs> what's that the way to describe Countdown? To watch mindless TV and eat a mountain of toast. This led me to wonder about the origin of the word flagging. I can't imagine how being tired or having dwindling energy has anything to do with flags. Please explain. Very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, but it's simply a metaphor, really, for something that's flagging by hanging down or drooping. Mm -hmm. If there's not enough wind to kind of buffet it into action, it's kind of falling and it's quite languid, if you like. So it's simply the idea of hanging down like a limp flag. But what Ella did remind me of is a fantastic word um, from the past for when you are feeling much the worse for wear, as she was that day, after a heavy night out the night before, you're feeling crapulous. 
crapulent. Oh. And crapulence actually goes all the way back to the Romans for excess drink. Well, it's basically following a night of debauch is how they would have used it. So if you've had excess drinking, eating, partying, anything that leaves you crambazzled, which if you remember means prematurely aged from excess partying, you will be feeling crapulent. Is crapulent related to crapulous? Uh, crapulous as in... What do you mean by crapulous? Well, is that a word? I mean, I, I felt... You're not familiar with the word crapulous. I'm sure there is a word crapulous. Is there a word crapulous? Maybe not. Maybe I've invented it. Maybe this is my moment. And this is my moment. <laughs> my destiny calls me. Oh, dictionary is the Scots I... language. Here we go. Crapulous. I think it might mean the same thing. Yes, it means exactly the same thing. Good. The first record is from 1700s. They're crapulous and shameful gluttony. There you uh, are. So very similar. I thought it was a word that existed. What I wanted to ask you is, are these two words, crapulent and crapulous, is that the origin of the word crap, meaning rubbish, terrible, no. awful? Ah, no. No, lo lo no, it's not actually. But that would be the more plausible etymology. The one that most people come up with is that it's somehow linked to Thomas Crapper and that Thomas Crapper in England invented the first flushing toilet. He didn't actually. And as you will know, with your um, royal history knowledge, Giles, in fact, the first well, one of the first flushing toilets, I think, was basically designed by the Queen's grandson. And I, try, I think it was Queen Anne. Uh, so it went back a lot further than Thomas Crapper, who had a superb case of nominative determinism, where his name suited, suited what he worked in, which was flushing toilets. Um, we think that crap actually goes back to the Latin again, crapper, which meant either discarded husks of corn or just dregs, basically. It was a kind of wasteful byproduct and then it became the byproduct of the human body. So the the crap part of crapulent and crapulous, what is the origin of that, the CRAP? Well, it's it's I don't actually know if you're looking beyond Latin. I just know that in Latin, crapulentia, I think it was called, was exactly as described. It was whatever you were feeling from a night of debauchery, as it is described in the dictionary. I'm just gonna double check that we that have this right. Yes. Crapulentus, very much intoxicated. And there was also venolentus, which was very specifically following alcohol. Well, there you are, Ella. Now you know that if you're flagging, it's because you're like a drooping flag, oh, virtually at half-mast. But comfort is to be had from eating a mountain of toast. Is that what you would eat? I, I love toast. I love toast. Yes, it's a perfect hangover food. And for me, it's... I felt like this, actually, when I was pregnant the second time. I just wanted calories and quite greasy calories as that. So I wanted chips, crisps, cake, you know, anything that was just stodged. That's what I want when I'm hungover, which doesn't happen very often, I have to say, these days. And for you, it doesn't happen at all, Giles, because you don't it drink It doesn't anymore. happen at all, but I still, I still, when I'm flagging, because one loses energy, the mm. idea of collapsing on the sofa with some comfort TV and toast, slightly burnt. I know it's not good for you when it's slightly burnt, but with a little bit too much butter and then a mm -hmm. gentle bit of Marmite on top. Oh, yes. I just think it's wonderful. And I, I cut it into little eights. I mean, I, I cut the toast oh, up really? in little squares. Yeah. Okay. Which my mother used to call Jack and Jill's. I don't know why. And oh, not soldiers. Okay. No, no. Soldiers are when they're, that's what you the dip eggs. into your eggs. Yes. Um, I don't know why they were called Jack and Jill's. 
Jackendills. We'll, no. have to, we'll have to work that out. Um, okay, Jack and Jill went up the hill, fetch a pail of water. Yeah. No, nothing to do with bread. Yeah, okay. I'm going to, leave that one. Say, maybe we leave that with the purple list. Yes, I'm going to serve you some little Jack and Jill, she would say. Little Jack. Mm. Oh, maybe there's a little bite Bunning for Jack, snack. a little bite for Jill, and you could even it out. Little squares of toast were called little Jack and Jills. If you know the answer or if you've got a question, it is purple at something else.com. Susie, I say, knows everything. She doesn't quite know everything, but she certainly knows how to choose some interesting words for each week. What's the cheer you've got to offer us today? Well, are you a Simpsons fan, Giles? Of course I am. OK, so you all know the word cromulent. Yes. Uh, which I don't think I've featured in my trio before. So cromulent means acceptable or legitimate. And oh. Simpsons fans will know this so well. It comes from a remark from Bart's teacher, Miss Crabapple, <laughs> to his observation that a noble spirit embiggens the smallest man, which became the, the catchphrase of, of Springfield. And Miss Crabapple says, embiggens? I never heard that word before I came to Springfield. And Lisa's teacher, Miss Hoover, says, I don't know why. It's a perfectly cromulent word. And... Uh, it's great. I love it. It's now in the dictionary and um, and I use it quite a lot. So cromulent, meaning acceptable or legitimate. Um, very different word named after, we were talking about entomology earlier and antennae. This was created by an American entomologist called F.W. Poos. Ooh. And it's pooter. And a pooter is a suction bottle, one of those suction bottles that botanists use for collecting specimens, maybe insects as well. Pooter comes up a lot on Countdown. I just like the sound of it. P-O-O-T-E-R. Yes. Very good. You've read, of course, The Diary of a Nobody. A very long time ago. It is, yes. in my view, the, one of the funniest and most painful novels written in the English language. It's written by a pair of brothers, George and Whedon Grossmith, one of whom was famous for singing all the, the great patter songs in Gilbert and Sullivan. They were theatre people, and they wrote this delightful book called The Diary of a Nobody, which, for me, it, it's the diary written by a, a suburban man, a, a sort of lower-middle-class man with aspirations, and it's both touching and hilarious, and he is called Mr Pooter. What's your third word? Well, we're having a little bit of a day like this as we record. Um, it's Rawky. And Rawky, R-A-W-K-Y, is an old dialect word meaning foggy, damp and a little bit chilly. Um, and it comes from Roke, which is a, another dialect word meaning mist or drizzly rain. So it's a bit dreek outside. Very good. A special poem this week. Sometimes I give you Shakespeare. Sometimes I give you Keats or Wordsworth or even modern and amusing poets from, you know, who could it be? Spike Milligan, uh, Roger McGough. But today we have a poem from a purple person. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Kevin Westerman. He posted this on the Purple People Facebook page, which is, I think, quite unofficial, but we love people to be in touch in any we which do. way they want. And here is a poem by Kevin Westerman. Oh, what a joy it is to seek the derivation morphology of the words we speak. Whether fairly obvious or a tad oblique, Germanic, Latin, French or Greek, purple people must know from whence or whither came the words our oscillator emotions deliver. Ooh. Excellent, Kevin. Congratulations. Brilliant. A so lovely poem to, to read, enjoy and roll round the mouth. It's great yeah. to play with words, which is what we try to do every week here in Purple Country. Indeed. And thank you for joining us and for being part of our lovely community. Do get in touch, as always. We have such fantastic correspondence from you. The address is purple at somethingelse.com. 
Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and oh, I think he's so cromulent. Oh, do you? More rocky mm. to me. Anyway, touch of the fobbly mobbly. It's Gully. 